because this is what we do to ourselves every day. We put in so much effort to just like exist as basic people in the world. Like (laughs) we're not like knockout celebrities. We're not like stunning anybody. Like we put in all of this work for a reward that doesn't actually ever come. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I'm really thrilled to be chatting with Jessica Defino. Jessica is a pro-skin, anti-product beauty reporter, which, as you can imagine, is a very short list of people doing that work. She is dismantling beauty standards, debunking marketing myths, and exploring how beauty culture impacts people. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Vogue, Allure, and more, but she currently writes the beauty-critical newsletter, The Unpublishable. I am a huge fan of Jessica's work, and this conversation is all about the intersections between beauty culture and diet culture, so I know you folks are going to be here for it. So here's Jessica, but first a quick break. Okay, it is time to read another one of your lovely notes. This one came in over Instagram. It is from at Zen Bear Moon. Zen Bear Moon writes, I love your work, Virginia. Burt Toast has helped change my life, and I appreciate you and your incredible glasses so damn much. Thanks for being a resource and light for those of us who are new to intuitive eating and the anti-diet space. Thank you so much. I really appreciate those kind words. The incredible glasses are from a local glasses shop near me called Lux Optique. You can find them linked on my Instagram if you are in the market for great glasses. But yeah, it really means a lot to hear what you guys think of the show in the newsletter. So you can tell me your thoughts by leaving a rating and a review in your podcast player. If you want even more Burnt Toast, make sure you are subscribed to the Burnt Toast newsletter. You can click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. And you'll also get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, which includes reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column. And you'll become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. So go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to learn more. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I feel a weird compulsion to tell you that as I contemplated this conversation, my skin broke out very dramatically. <laughs> and I was like, do I need to disclose this to her? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then I was like, no, it's it's fine. It's fine. Um, it's can- totally fine. You're just a normal human being with skin. <laughs> yes. That's what happens. <laughs> exactly. But it was just like very funny timing. Okay. But why don't we start by having you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. So I describe myself as a pro-skin, anti-product beauty reporter. So I report on beauty and and skincare mostly through the lens of skin first, and then what we put on the skin and the consumerism of it all second, which is pretty rare in the beauty space. Um, And it's also really hard in the beauty space. I was like finding all this information about skin and skincare culture and beauty culture and really wanting to report on it and found that I had a hard time placing these sort of more controversial pitches. So my bread and butter is still freelancing. I write for places like the New York Times and Vogue and Allure. Um, but mostly these days I am working on my own newsletter, The Unpublishable, where I can kind of like dive a little deeper <laughs> and explore some of these like not industry friendly topics. I mean, you are speaking to my soul. As my (laughs) readers know, I started Burnt Toast so that I could write diet culture stories that I can't write in the outlets that run diet ads next to my work. I spent a long time at women's magazines, and the ethical conundrum of the beauty department is 
Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I don't think people really understand the extent to which advertising and beauty content are interwoven. I don't know if you want to like sketch that out a little bit for us. It's really intense. I mean, I had no idea until I started reporting on the beauty industry too. But yeah, I mean, the beauty media is pretty much funded by beauty advertisers, which means it's not within a publication's best interest to publish anything that sort of goes against advertisers' interest, which means a lot of beauty content out there is very product focused. It's very sort of light and Mm -hmm. airy and not really diving deep to question like, how are these products affecting our skin, our health, our endocrine systems? The beauty media makes money in one of two ways. It's through advertising or it's through affiliate sales. So there's a big internal incentive to push a lot of products on people because the publication will get a cut of all of those products that are sold online. It's very interwoven. And I have had so many stories like killed or completely edited to remove brand names, um, softened, just really toned down in order to appease advertisers. I now want to tell you my story of this, which is taking us all the way back to, I think, like 2007. So like, you know, dark ages, pre-social media. I did my first big investigative feature piece, which was a deep dive into working conditions in nail salons. And I wrote it for Jane magazine when Jane was like the coolest women's magazine and also the sort of counterculture women's magazine. And we did this big reported feature. I spent all this time with these nail salon workers, you know, exploring every aspect of this. And they killed it right before we went to press because of nail polish advertisers and because they're the big portion of subscribers were nail salons and they thought they would lose subscribers. And that was such a transformative moment for me as a journalist where I was like, oh, I have to figure out different ways to do this because that was a media outlet that I don't think you would have expected to be as beholden to their advertisers as they were. I can talk about this all now because they folded a million years ago. (laughs) And the piece did end up finally running in The Nation, which obviously has no beauty advertisers, but it also (laughs) was read by a much smaller audience, not all of whom understood what nail salons were. Because nation readers are the overlap between nail salon <laughs> customers and nation readers is probably not That's that big. The thing yeah. it is like it is a little bit easier to get some harder hitting pieces published in like more news outlets, but that's not where like the majority of people who are interested in beauty are getting their beauty information. And so I try really hard to try to infiltrate those spaces, mm-hmm. but. It is hard. And like your story doesn't surprise me at all. But still, every time I hear something like that, I'm like, oh, I know. Oh, like it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And when you're trying to publish in the other outlets, you have to convince them that these issues matter because now it's a women's issue. It's fluffy. It's beauty. You know, we do hard news like there's that whole piece of it. Well, we could rant about that forever, (laughs) clearly, but I feel like we also need to talk about Kim Kardashian. I also feel like I probably need to apologize for making you do this, maybe bringing (laughs) up some trauma. Oh, Um, no, you're good. But we are recording this. It's a week after the Met Gala when Kim wore Marilyn Monroe's dress and went on this crazy diet, losing a stupid amount of weight in three weeks. And you wrote a really incredible piece for Vice last month about your experience working for the Kardashians app company. Mm -hmm. And you draw so many smart parallels in that piece between underpaid media work and beauty work. And so I'm just dying to know what is your take on the whole Met Gala thing? 
my immediate take on the Met Gala thing was that Kim was boasting about spending three weeks basically starving herself, working out twice a day in a sauna suit. She did an article for Vogue where she said she spent 14 hours the day before getting her hair bleached. Like that's so much effort. And my thought was like, she looked fine. It was like a pretty boring look. (laughs) It wasn't a standout moment at the Met Gala. And I think it's such a perfect parallel for mass beauty culture, because this is what we do to ourselves every day. We put in so much effort to just like exist as basic people in the world. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're not like knockout celebrities. We're not like stunning anybody. Like we put in all of this work for a reward that doesn't actually ever come. And I thought it was like a pretty interesting parallel there. Yeah, you're right. It's like an amazing metaphor of what we're all doing. She just like compressed it all into three weeks. Yeah. My other thought was like, this is a woman for whom beauty work is so non-negotiable. If she wants to leave the house without makeup, you know, this is something that's going to be covered and talked about in a moment. And yeah, so for me, it just kind of felt like, why are we even surprised? She's saying out loud what a lot of other people were also doing to get into their dresses, but they weren't making a media stunt out of it. You know, it's not uncommon for a celebrity to spend three weeks before a big event doing insane things to fit into a dress. Yeah. And it's not uncommon for anyone. I had tweeted something to that effect and someone was like, please, this is what women do before their wedding day all the time. It's not that big of a deal. And I was like, just because it happens all the time doesn't mean it's not that big of a deal. Like, that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal that so many people are doing it constantly. (laughs) It's not just celebrities. So a line I loved from the Vice piece is you wrote, beauty standards have always been physical manifestations of systems of oppression. And this, of course, applies to the diet industry just as much as it does to beauty and skincare. So I really want to explore the intersections of these two cultures with you more. You know, how are skincare culture and diet culture really one and the same? Yeah, they are the exact same. I always say skincare culture is dewy diet culture. And I mean, there's so many parallels, like in both instances, people have been made to believe that a certain aesthetic signifies health when that's not the case. We're sold products to help us achieve that aesthetic at the expense of our health. We're sent to doctors who reinforce beauty standards and call it care. There are all sorts of doctors who subscribe to like BMI as a marker of health and will tell a patient like just lose weight when they actually have cancer. (laughs) And dermatologists are really not that different. And I don't mean this as a slight against dermatologists. I mean this as like an indictment of the entire Western medical system where beauty standards have been like subsumed into medical care. So like when you're going to a dermatologist very often, aside from like skin cancer screenings, you are getting treatments to help you look a certain way without ever exploring the root cause of why your skin is reacting the way it's reacting. Mm -hmm. Like the entire thing is just, okay, how do we get rid of this as quickly as possible? And very often that goes against your actual skin health. And they're often treating things that aren't even health problems, right? Like wrinkles are not a health problem. Exactly. And even acne is not, you know, like breaking out is normal. 
I hate like skin types. I hate this idea of normal skin because like normal skin reacts to the world around it. That is actually the job your skin is supposed to play. It's supposed to alert you to any potential imbalances, any internal health issues, any issues in your external environment. So when your skin is reacting in that way, that's health. Like that is exactly what it's supposed to be doing. And it's sort of our job to one, figure out, okay, is this actually a cue about my health? And if so, what's going on? And two, oh no, this isn't actually about my health. This is just a normal thing that happens to people as they age or as they go through pregnancy or Mm -hmm. as they go through menopause, whatever. Yeah, so much of it has nothing to do with health. And then I think the other parallel is that we're told that subscribing to this certain standard of beauty, whether it's your body or your skin, will increase your confidence and make you feel good. And in reality, the data bears out a very different story. So feeling held to this impossible standard of beauty to basically have like skin like a doll or a model who has been through Photoshop and filters and Facetune and plastic surgery increases appearance anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia, facial dysmorphia, eating disorder, self-harm, and even suicide. So like we're told that it's going to be good for us and make us feel better. And really it makes us feel like shit. The thing about dermatologists gets me so fired up. We have a history of melanoma in my family. So I do go in for my skin checks. And I remember trying to schedule a skin check with a doctor and I couldn't get the annual skin check appointment for, I think it was 18 months. She was booked out to do like the annual cancer screenings, but they could get me in the next week to talk about acne. And I just remember feeling, isn't making sure I don't have cancerous moles like more pressing? Like it said a lot to me, but there's no product she can sell me related to cancerous moles, but there are many products to sell me (laughs) related to breakouts. I mean, that's horrible. And it's also not, again, not surprising. I've had so many women tell me specifically that they have gone in for their annual skin cancer screenings and then their dermatologist will start talking about Botox or filler and sort of like selling them Mm -hmm. in this health appointment. And that really messes with your mind because it's coming from a medical doctor Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're suggesting alongside a cancer screening, hey, maybe you should get your crow's feet done. Maybe you should get like your frown lines done. Maybe you should get your lips filled. And it starts to feel like these things are part of being Mm -hmm. a healthy human being when they're not. And I'm thinking about the intersections too with anti-fat bias. You know, I think for a lot of us in bigger bodies, there's often a pressure to feel like, well, if I'm not meeting that beauty standard, I have to have good skin. Like there's like a sort of a tension between these two things. And we could talk about the vulnerability of going into these appointments, to any medical appointment, you're braced for medical weight stigma. Similarly, I think going to the dermatologist is often really anxiety-provoking about appearance because you're expecting to be dissected and told everything about your skin is wrong. Right, right. I have a long history of being like obsessed with dermatology and taking any pill or prescription that they would give me. So starting from probably 14, I started antibiotics for acne. I was put on the birth control pill at 15 for acne. I was on retinoids, tretinoin, Accutane for too long, and then a topical steroid prescription that actually ended up causing something called skin atrophy, which kickstarted my whole interest in beauty and skincare to begin with, because I, I actually like 
it stopped the functioning of my skin and, and my skin just like stopped working. It was like peeling off of my face in chunks. It was a really terrible experience at the hands of my dermatologist. And I remember after I had like pretty much healed my skin myself from like learning about how the skin actually works and, and how unnecessary most products actually are and really paring back, I went to a dermatologist again for my skin cancer screening and, and he was like, your skin is really dry in this sort of like very judgmental tone. And I was like, yeah, it's dry because you and your colleagues put me on Accutane for years, which killed my sebaceous gland function. And now my skin can't moisturize itself. Like that's not my fault. It's actually your fault. And it, yeah, it is really frustrating, especially as somebody who has been through the ringer with dermatology to still get that judgment where it's like, mm -hmm. I've actually tried everything you've suggested, and it doesn't actually work. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so infuriating. So I loved the piece you wrote on the newsletter where you talked about Katie Storino, who is a really great body positive, fat positive influencer, fashion influencer. But yeah, she did this whole thing about Botox. It felt like a very weird left turn. And so I just wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I actually see this a lot in the body positive community, especially on Instagram, where, you know, body stuff is fine and open and, you know, love yourself. But then when it gets to your face, when it gets above the neck, all of that rhetoric kind of like goes out the window. In Katie Serino's post, she celebrated... Botox's anniversary with a huge cake. So it was like, eat the cake. And then there's this pro-beauty culture rhetoric in there, which is like, freeze your frown lines. And these things really are the same. And I see them put together so often as if they don't stem from the same exact tenets of oppression. Mm -hmm. And they do. And I think it's really harmful to have a platform and sort of position yourself as if you're taking a stand against beauty standards because people trust you that way. And then when you use that stance to feed people other beauty standards, it's really easy for them to internalize that as something that is good and healthy. And it just causes this really weird thing. So what I like to tell people is to like, take the beauty content that you consume and swap out certain phrases. So like, for instance, if instead of frown lines, this Instagram caption said fat rolls, right. would it feel good to you? If they right. were like, get rid of your fat rolls in right. five minutes. No, that would obviously be problematic. But for right. some reason, when we put frown lines in there, it's like, oh yeah, no, I have to get rid of this. Or yeah. like wrinkles and stretch marks or acne and cellulite or like dull skin and extra five pounds. So it's a really good exercise to sort of insert one for the other and see how empowering it feels to you. And I think in the large majority of instances, you'll see like, oh, this is actually really harmful messaging coming from these, these beauty influencers. I am so glad you are connecting these dots. I think that ageism hasn't been touched by the body positive movement, at least not online. I don't think it's a conversation we're having yet. Shout out to my mom who will be listening to this and saying, yes, that's why I text you every week and say, write about ageism. <laughs> mom, I'm on it. <laughs> um, but, but she's right. You know, I feel like even among friends of mine or, you know, folks in this community who would no longer say, I feel fat in a pejorative way, it's still very normal and acceptable to say, I'm so old or to express yes. remorse about your birthday and certainly about any physical signs of aging. And so 
yeah, why do you think we're still so locked into anti-aging as the goal, especially, you know, as you put it in the newsletter piece, it is literally the most unattainable of all beauty standards. Yeah, physically impossible, never going to happen, <laughs> which is great for the beauty industry. Like right. the reason that this is pushed so hard is because it's a never ending goal to have. Like there is no point at which you will have like bought the right product or gotten the right Botox shot. And you're like, oh, I'm done. I've anti-aged. Like they get you forever once they sell you on anti-aging. But I also think that this attraction to anti-aging actually has like very spiritual roots. And I think that it's sort of an extension of fear of death, a fear of facing our mortality. And that's a very human thing to fear. And we currently don't live in a culture where we actually explore those feelings. And so I think that causes a lot of fear that builds up within us. And then just because we live in a society that also really values external appearance, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, if I can just look young forever, I won't actually have to face any of these issues. Mm -hmm. Like a big thing I hear with women who are telling me that they, they need to get Botox, they need to get filler, they need to get the facelift is like, I look in the mirror and I don't look like myself anymore. And that's a really scary thing for a lot of people to face. Yeah. And I get that. But also the point of life is not to look like yourself forever. Like the point of life is to grow and evolve and change and find a way to be comfortable with that change. Like if we keep mm -hmm. reverting back to former versions of ourselves and calling that progress, like that causes a lot of problems. People say the same thing about weight gain and particularly postpartum weight gain. You know, I just don't feel like myself anymore. And it's like, why is your 16-year-old self or your 26-year-old self, why is that the only you that you're allowed to be? Why did you have to freeze in time with that body? Why can you not change and grow in terms of your physical appearance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's such like a, a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. And I think with anti-aging too, there's a lot of it tied up in like productivity culture and also the way that we treat our elderly community. Like right. if we really wanted to address the fear of anti-aging, like we would need to start like investing in community care and, and advocating for human rights and health equity and economic security for the elderly and age diversity in the workplace. Um, and this idea that once you stop being able to produce output for the economy mm -hmm. that your value as a person diminishes. And I think all of that is, is sort of tied up in what we're doing to our faces as well. I'm thinking this also intersects so heavily with misogyny, right? I mean, women are held to very different aging standards than men. And in the workplace, that plays out in terms of whether you can get a job and whether you can literally financially support yourself. So yeah, talk about that piece a little bit. I've certainly talked to women who've said, you know, I don't care about gray hair, but I can't show up to work with gray hair. You know, like, how do you navigate that piece of it? It's really tough. And when I get this same question, I, I do tend to draw a line here between beauty culture and diet culture again, because we've gotten to the point in diet culture where it's like, yes, we can we can all agree that life is easier for you in terms of how people treat you when you're thin. Mm -hmm. Is that a good justification to starve yourself and put yourself through these unhealthy practices in order to be thin? I think most people would agree, no, that's not a good justification. But when it comes to beauty, when it comes to wrinkles, when it comes to gray hair, we allow that. We say, okay, yes, this is a good justification. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to see us get to the point as a culture where we can agree that like giving into these beauty demands 
is similarly not a sustainable way to exist in the world. Like sometimes we feel like we do have to alter our appearance in order to deal with these external judgments. And coping mechanisms aren't always bad, Mm -hmm. but you have to understand what is a coping mechanism in your beauty routine and what is truly something like, oh, this is for my health. This is for like me feeling good. This is like a self-expression lipstick. Mm -hmm. And what is, oh, I'm actually dealing with like a really harmful ageist, sexist standard and I'm giving into it in order to exist in the world. And where can we divest and where can we invest in changing those standards instead? Maybe a first step is just kind of being honest with yourself, even if you don't feel, I mean, certainly if job security is on the line, you're not going to stop dyeing your hair. And I don't think either one of us is saying you should, you know, you can only challenge what makes sense to challenge. Exactly. But there's probably some clarity that comes with being clear and honest with yourself about why you're choosing these different standards. I mean, it can be so interrelated and hard to sort out for yourself why these different things matter. Right. There's a great quote that I always love to reference from Tressie McMillan Cotton, who is a sociologist. And in her book, Thick, there's this line that says, I like what I like is always a capitalist lie. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, like when I first read that, it hit me so hard. And I repeat it constantly to people because just saying like, oh, I like doing this or I do this for me isn't really a good enough answer because there's always something deeper that informs why you like it and why it makes you feel good. And it normally stems from something in the external culture making you feel really bad first. And that is the thing that we have to address. Yeah. One of the reader questions I answered recently that I think made people the most uncomfortable was someone saying, but what if I just don't want to be fat? Like, what if I'm just, that's just my preference. It's so hard for us to come to that place of recognizing, like, we didn't get there in a vacuum. So, Jessica, we wrap up every show with our Butter for Burnt Toast segment, where we give a recommendation of something we're loving. And what do you have for us? I was thinking about this, and I'm working on a post for my newsletter now, and I'm trying to create a list of, like, songs, movies, poems, art that reference ugly women, (laughs) or, like, not necessarily ugly, but things you wouldn't necessarily find attractive, Mm -hmm. just to sort of, like, romanticize these features that are often neglected by mainstream beauty media. So I was listening to Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen the other day. And I love that line where he's like, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. And then it's just (laughs) this like bleeding heart love song to this woman who he's like, "Eh, yeah, I mean, you're fine, I guess. (laughs) And I just love that. And I want like, I want more, I want more art about plain, ugly people. (laughs) Yes, yes, I am here for that. That's a great recommendation. All right. Mine is also music. We're in sync there. This is actually a double recommendation. So novelist Emma Straub, who I recommend just as a human, as a fashion icon, as a writer, everything, I recommend her. (laughs) And I recommend her new book coming out very soon, This Time Tomorrow, which is the best novel I've read all year. So that's your first recommendation. But a very cool thing Emma does that she talked about in her newsletter is she makes playlists for each of her novels, which you can find on Spotify, and we will link to them. And they are so good, and particularly 
for my peers who were teenagers in the 90s. It's a lot of 90s music, but they're awesome playlists. The one for This Time Tomorrow is really great. It starts with the Kink song, which is not a 90s song, but is a beautiful song. And then the one for her novel Modern Lovers, I'm really obsessed with. It starts with Melissa Etheridge. This is the soundtrack that I've been putting on. I talked about in a recent podcast that I'm into puzzling at the moment, doing puzzles. And so that's my puzzle soundtrack when I'm working on a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> I love and that. my eight-year-old really loves it too. And I was like, do we need a different soundtrack? Because we're starting a new puzzle. And she was like, no, we need Modern Lovers again. Aww. So we're really into <laughs> it. Emma's playlists are, they're really good. So that is my recommendation. I'm going to go listen to it now. <laughs> it's so good. Jessica, thank you for being here. Tell us where we can find more of you and support your work. Thank you so much for having me. Pretty much all my work now is through my newsletter, The Unpublishable. So you can Google The Unpublishable or the URL is jessicadefino.substack.com. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode especially if it's a friend with a lot of feelings about skincare. This would be a good one for them. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. And as you know from me and Jessica, that is hard to find. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism. <laughs>